Iniesta's in the middle. Torres is trying to find him. It's broken for Fabregas. Now it's Iniesta. This is it. Everyone, my name is Neil White. I'm from Backpage and the big interview with Graham Hunter. This is the second part of World Cup 2010 Revista. We're working on some more big interviews for you now, and there'll be a whole new season of them soon. In the meantime, we're marking the 10 year anniversary of Spain's win at the World Cup in South Africa with this series, walking through that tournament with the man who is side by side with Spain every step of the way, Graham Hunter. I hope you've been listening along so far. We pick up our story today in the immediate aftermath of Spain's 1-0 defeat by Switzerland. That was their opening game. Graham watched the match from behind Ike Casillas' goal that day. He was in the tunnel as the Spain players kind of trudged off afterwards. And he was back at the training camp the next day to see what happened next. Graham, let's start by looking at the considered proportionate reaction by the always reflective and fair Spanish sports media. If you were doing a... James Richardson, the day after the Switzerland game, with your coffee and the spread of the Spanish newspapers on a little table in front of you, what was the mood? Well, we never my coffee. We didn't need coffee and Anne because it was warlike, and uh, they weren't for peace breaking out. They're a hysterical bunch, really, to be honest with you. And if I'm completely frank, Spain's football media, um, when you read it or you admire it from a distance from your culture, whereby you might not have so much. Uh, so many media wholly dependent on football, it can be interesting. And it certainly was part of the reason that dragged me to Spain because I thought this is a country where they, they draw diagrams and they know tactics. And it was I was a little bit like uh, King Louis Saint the Blue, give me the power of man's red flower. And you get near them and you're like, ooh, I see the blemishes. I see you in high definition now because they, they got hysterical. In the book, I wrote a phrase, I think, where I said... Uh, Spain's media are capable of being perfectly respectable and intelligent in, in fair weather, but they get hysterical at the first sign of a cloud. And the loss to Switzerland awakened old ghosts. Spain never getting past the quarterfinal. Spain continuously slipping up against, for example, in 1998, against Nigeria with poor old Zubizarret throwing one in the net, knocked out uh, by a refereeing decision, in my opinion, against South Korea. All these things came flooding to the surface and they didn't have any coping mechanism to say, we, we don't need to be emotionally incontinent. You know, we've, we've got really tight plastic pants on. And as a result, there was no context. It was like, witch finder general, who's the witch? Let's throw somebody in the water, fill their pockets with stones and get rid of them, baby. And <laughs> the one they, they wanted to say, you know, he said Jehovah, was um, was Sergio Busquets. And, and that was philosophically because Spain was beginning to be, if not dominated yet, certainly impressed by 4-3-3. Um, Barcelona had won two Champions Leagues, League using that format. And the idea that Dabosky harboured, that with a selection from Villa and Torres and Silva and Pedro and Mata and Iniesta in the attacking positions meant that 
there could be there's doubly pivoti but those two were Chabi Alonso and Busquets it so happened Neil that Busquets was relatively new he'd only played four competitive matches for Spain he was the youngest Alonso was a European champion he'd been on the bench in 2008 people absolutely respected him and, and there was this idea that what Spain had to do was put Chabi Alonso in the middle Chavi to his right Iniesta to his left three up front and dump Busquets the fact is Neil Busquets did make an error, maybe two in the Switzerland game. That they lost was not his fault. But to lose the jump and to let his man run off him in the build-up to uh, Dardyok scoring, it, it didn't look great. He was substituted and, and the witch hunt began. There's a weird thing that goes on as well in the media coverage of a national team during the World Cup where you've got these gaps between games. And if there's a storyline, be it good or bad, business is good. Because you had newspapers and radios like taking polls, should he be dropped, shouldn't he be dropped? Was Luis Aragonés, the coach who had coached Spain to victory in 2008, was, was he involved in the media back home or was he in, in South Africa? Yeah, editors wanted to make a fuss and, and when you've got a scapegoat, it, it, like, like Beckham was in 98 for Glenn Hoddle, it's really easy to point the finger. Now, the man you talk about is different. Luis Aragonés um, certainly fueled the fire. First of all, we're kind of talking about, if you want, the antipathy that Alec Ferguson and Kenny Dalglish always had for each other. Rangers Celtic, even though Kenny grew up a Rangers fan. Rangers Celtic in their career, Man United Liverpool, Legends, Snippy, always, what, what, what's he up to? What's that look for? What, what's, what's between those lines? Whose camp are you in? Now, Del Bosque's much gentler than that. Tough? But in his outward prognosis, the things that the impression he wants to get, the way he wants to treat people, he's much gentler than that. And Luis Aragonés, you know, isn't a bad animal for all the fact that he snarls and snaps. Working for Al Jazeera, you had this ex-coach who'd won them the first trophy since 1964 and who had been at to Del Real Madrid. In 2008, he was deeply stung by the fact that the Spanish FA, before the tournament started, won had given up on him. Two had hired Del Bosque. So Aragon has won the previous tournament knowing that his Real Madrid nemesis was coming through. And I was in Vienna in the autumn of 2008 at a coaches conference where the two of them circled the whole hotel building trying to stay away from each other. If one of them was in the cocktail bar, the other one was in the dining room. If one of them was in floor one in the seminar, the other one was downstairs in the lobby. And it was it was a comedy, man. And it's not hatred and it's not dislike, but when Aragonés said about the first game, bah, they looked as if they had their, their foot off the pedal, they looked as if they came into that game expecting to win rather than doing something about it, they didn't play 110%. Well, man, that's just like putting out a fire with gasoline, as, as David Jones would have had it. So, yeah, at a certain point, things were getting red hot. So there's a lot of reactionary stuff going on from the media, but there's a reaction that I want to talk briefly about. Somebody you mentioned in the previous episode, which is the national team press chief, Paloma. While this feeding frenzy is going on and they're really under attack, she comes up with this sort of double-pronged response. The first part of which is an unscheduled press conference appearance by Del Bosque. It goes back to something that's become, probably from around this time onwards, a real staple of messaging in American sports and now in football, which is process over results. And what he was saying is the process is still really sound. Stick with us, I'm sure this was just a blip. So that's part one, right, is the Stelboski press conference. And then part two 
which I thought you could maybe talk about, is she opened the doors to the training center at Poch and the living side of it at Poch. So she creates this kind of access to the human side of what the players are experiencing, something you talked a lot about in the last episode. From a media point of view, that's a really interesting story. So you get to fill these column inches and these broadcast minutes with something that isn't, should Busquets be dropped, is Del Bosque losing the plot. You've, you've painted the picture really as if you were there because she didn't turn into Paloma Antoinette. She didn't say, let them, let them eat cake. She said, I'll bake you bread. And that's absolutely at the heart of it because, you know, whether people on seeing her overwhelmed at tournaments often and being bullied mercilessly thought thought she was cutting edge or not, this was 100% perfect. She did exactly what you said and, and said to Del Bosque, look, it's important that you come out today um, unscheduled. So he's a 60-year-old man carrying a pound or two. He's been defeated. Um, It's his first ever World Cup game as a coach. I'm not suggesting he would lick his wounds the following day, but to to, to go into your bunker, to deconfigure the game, to to double-check with your assistants, lads, are are we all as one? Um, What have we learned? Who's not fresh? How do we change? Do we change? Is the training different? No. The first thing he does, that Paloma's suggestion, is come out. And he says, you know, like you said, his exact expression that there aren't two Spains. Luis Aragonés is in mind. This is, there's continuity. Identical, no, because the big thing was Luis Aragonés principally played one pivote, which was Senna, and largely kept Alonso off. And, you know, it was a 4-3-3. However, or a 4-4-2 sometimes. However, the long and short is his words weren't just conciliatory. They were intelligent. They they did, they, they, they weren't just like a sponge sopping up the venom. And Del Bosque, consciously or subconsciously, said, look, we should, We'd have had to win these six games anyway, for my taste, that remain. Let's just go out and win these six games. That's what we're going to... Anyway, you know, if I was fooling around with you and the listeners, I'd say, that idiot Del Bosque, you know, he now goes and completely screws up. He lets these half-wit failure players go off on a... All but three of them off to a safari. And he's about to let them stay up all night to watch sport that we'll come to in a minute. And you're like, you idiot! You know, this is ridiculous! No, what we're about to find out is that, you know, sometimes right is wrong and wrong is right. And and everything, like they say, is written, history is written by the victors. So the idea of saying to all the remaining press who aren't getting the players that day, at least not until maybe a mixed zone that night, deadlines, 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 when we can walk around the bedrooms and film. So there's a whole posse of people. And you see the gym and you see the dining room and you see the games room and you see the, the famous cricket pavilion which overlooks the, the beautiful cricket pitches and backs onto the rugby pitches. And they've got um, game consoles and they've got darts and they've got pool and they've got snooker and they've got table tennis. And everything we know about them from now on will be educated by... We've got a pretty damn clear view of the campus. And suddenly the, the cops and the army and the private security, and and where's your badge, and what what's on your badge, melts away. And it, it's, a, it's a subject I'll return to on the day before the final. But for a minute or two, it feels pretty privileged. So you get good footage, and you also just direct the stampeding herd away from, let's trample on somebody. You mentioned the cricket pavilion there, right? And this is going to become, in the, in the Hollywood movie, of these three international titles that Spain win with the World Cup as the, as the jewel in the crown. This is like a, a pivotal scene where the, the score is going to swell up. There's a sort of 
clandestine meeting in the pavilion. Is it that evening, the evening of the day after the defeat? Have I got it right? So can you walk us through the origins and maybe the roll call, the guys that were there? And I mean, to me, this is like a snapshot of the difference between the way this squad is getting managed right now. And this this goes to the safari trip for them all and then the late night sports on TV that we're going to get to. This is kind of treating these guys as grown-ups. And can you explain how this meeting at the Cricket Pavilion plays into that? So what happens is Del Bosque and one of Spain's greatest ever footballers, Fernando Hierro, who's his close friend, who was his captain at Real Madrid, kicked out of the club on the same day, the two of them. He's now Spain's technical director. He's effectively the man who said to Ángel Villar, we must hire Del Bosque. They're at this meeting. They call this meeting. Tony Grandi, who's Dabosky's um, assistant in winning the Champions League at Real Madrid and assistant now at Spain, is there. And then only a hardcore of the leader players. So clearly the captain is there, Iker Casillas. One of the two who are probably, for those who didn't follow Spain, they're going to be lesser known as leaders. One is Carlos Marchena. The Seville-born defender who, you know, plays much of his sport at Valencia, also at Deportivo La Coruña, deeply underrated footballer who wins the, the, the Euros in 2008 as the reigning centre-back. And Pepe Reina, uh, just bristling with... Pepe Reina is the single greatest underrated, underreported success story of those three tournaments. Every waking moment is to inspire people, to test people, to cheer people up, to drive them on, to show leadership and accept that he'll have one game in three tournaments, three medals, one game, and that's just fine as long as we get on that podium. It's a brilliant story. He's there. So is Xavi Hernandez, so is Fernando Torres, and so is Xavi Alonso. And I'm going to pinch a phrase I used from the book. It's a Chatham House Rules um, idea, which is that once they're through the door, everybody's equal. There's no hierarchy. Who should speak first? And there's no fear that my words will be taken out of context or repeated. In fact, they're sacrosanct within these walls. The themes can be reported to the other players, but they won't be tagged to which name said which. And that means that there's a blank canvas and there's one subject. Were we wrong to play in this shape? Have we missed a trick? Have people figured us out or was the defeat an accident? We know what we think, coaching staff. Players, you get free reign to speak out now. And it included, Neil, it included not just the system, but it included an analysis from the senior players about whether or not they trusted Busquets. And the unanimous verdict is, we're the European champions. We've only just equaled Brazil's 35-game unbeaten run. That game was an accident. The system is right. We'll all, we're all right behind you. And Busquets is a phenomenon. And, and this, there could not have been a more robust, unifying, I'd almost say inspirational meeting that took place. And we, the media, took days to find out about it. It's not that it didn't leak out. It did. But initially... This nourishment, this ready Brett glow was, was shared amongst those who could win the World Cup, which excluded all of us, obviously, and it had a massive impact. It's a brilliant story, and I wonder how if it connects to the slight difference in the power structure at clubs in Spanish football, where they've got a group of captains. You know, they, they, they have this idea of, of senior representation from within the squad. That's kind of baked in, isn't it? 
I think that's a brilliant point. And, and I know that some people who are new to us will, will listen to that with bemusement. And I know I, you know, we, we, we were brought up to believe in the captain. And when I first heard about a, a, a captaincy committee, I, I admit I had to process the idea. But I think you've nailed it. There's shared responsibilities in certain clubs. There's an idea of um, pecking order that the, the vice captains will, depending on seniority, will be next into the captaincy slot if the captain leaves the club or retires. And that means that there's that there's more often consensus. And I'll touch on one other thing that I think was important. So many of these guys have been together since kids. Irrespective of where they were born, which club signed them first, whether they speak in Catalan or pure Spanish or a bit of Gallego or Valencian, lots of them have been trying to win tournaments or winning tournaments since they were 15, 16. And therefore, they've lived together, they've travelled together, they're not cast together in one big tournament for the first time. And, and that leads to an ability to actually talk like grown men to one another. Okay, I want to move on to another nighttime meeting, which is a smaller group of these a smaller group of these players but it's remarkable it's funny right it's funny and it's and it's pretty cool but it's pretty remarkable so this week between or five days between the switzerland game and their next group game which is now although it's against Honduras and their massive favorites it's absolutely vital they have to win and i'm going to say a couple of nights before they play maybe three nights before they play it is game seven out of seven of the NBA finals, the basketball finals in America, okay? So that's a seven-game series. The Boston Celtics and the LA Lakers are tied at 3-3. And South African time, its tip-off is going to be, I think it's, is it 2 a.m. or 3 a.m.? Can you remember? Yeah, I do. It, it's at 3 a.m. They're up at 3 a.m. And I think it, it probably starts at 3.30. The Celtics... And the, the Lakers, an eternal rivalry. It's gone right to the last game. There's an argument on sporting terms, if these guys are just serious international athletes, that they'd be up for this anyway, right? But there's a special component. Kobe Bryant at that stage, I guess, is vying to be... The late Kobe is, is vying to be not just recognised, but confirmed as the current number one in the world and, and to begin to tilt for the states about where is he in the all-time podium? One, two, three, four, whatever... And the extra explosive component is there's a flipping Spaniard in there. There's a Spaniard in there who adores um, football, who adores La Roja, the football team, and it's Pau Gasol. And beyond that, the guys who get up, there's so, so many layers to this, the guys who get up um, are, are mostly all going to play because um, it's PK, it's Alonso, um, both of whom are going to be absolutely central. Piquet's had his face kicked in, um, both wounded twice against Switzerland on the pitch, and just about, um, I think, 48 hours later, as the, the scars are beginning to heal, he gets a ball right in the face, which opens all the cut up again. That could do with healing. Um, there are two or three others, including Pepe Reina, there, and they ask permission. They're like, listen, we want to commandeer the lounge. We want to make sure that the satellite TV will be bringing us um, the Lakers against the Celtics because Spain is obsessed with basketball. That's the that's the other truth to say. That if, if there wasn't a World Cup on, they'd have probably been up all night drinking watching it. So to them it's essential. And Dabowski says, 
Yeah, you're grown-ups. Yeah, okay, lads. You can get up at three in the morning. You know, this is, like you say, it's a short tournament. There's a short turnaround between Switzerland and Honduras. Um, they have to win. They simply have to win. And four or five of them get deprived of a good five or six hours of shut-eye. And yet, winners write history, Neil. I mean, if you imagine, like, even 10 years on, the sports science team, uh, an elite club, looking at that, you know, two or three nights before a big final. You know, there's no way. There's just no way. Uh, we should say, by the way, that the Lakers, Pau Gasol and Kobe and the rest of the Lakers win that game seven. So everybody's in a great mood after that. Gasol actually has a huge game, top rebounds, and I think second point scoring behind Kobe. So it all ends happily for those guys. Um, and now the clock's ticking towards their own big game. So the Honduras game is going to take place at a fairly small, nondescript stadium with very little historical sporting significance. Had you ever been to, had you ever been to Ellis Park before? No, this is my debut in the country. You know, I'd, I'd been working as a sports journalist in Glasgow when, when South Africa won the Rugby World Cup it, with that astonishing, maybe one of, you know, with Ali's fight in Zaire. There are other examples, but that Ellis Park, South Africa winning the World Cup um, it is one of the great sport culture interactions ever. It, it's, it's a strange experience because... Um, Coming up to the stadium, you're surrounded by lots and lots of, of poverty. The streets look full of people who not only don't have a lot of money, but don't seem to have a lot of hope. It's an unnerving experience. But coming back to the prep for it, um, the plus side was that it, it was near. You know, it was a maximum two-hour journey um, to get there. Within the camp, things are clear. They're nervous. Ike Casillas will say that and at that point, he's going to get more nervous in a minute. But at that point, he'd never been more nervous his entire life than in the build-up to Honduras. So De Bosque is true to his word and the, the system, the macro doesn't really change. There are a couple of lineup changes that are fairly easy to explain. One of them, certainly. Iniesta was taken off during the Switzerland game and doesn't make it back for this match. So... Iniesta's out. Fernando Torres comes in, which talks to your point about the 4-3-3 earlier on. You know, I think at this point in time, we all think about Iniesta as sitting next to Xavi, maybe with Busquets behind him playing for Barcelona in Spain. But in De Bosque's Spain, certainly at this point, he is playing uh, on the left of the three. So what happens is Fernando Torres comes in. Let's talk about him in a minute. David Villa gets shunted out to the left side of the three up front. And Torres holds that, that central um, position. And the other one is on the other side of the attacking three, Jesus Navas had replaced David Silva in the first game and Dobosi decides that that's the way he wants it to start against Honduras. That's right. And um, I think even if you had uh, Dobosi here right now on this tape, he, he would find it hard to publicly nail the reason for his decision to start to let his trust in David Silva slip. Something that David Silva eventually complains about and says, I should have more games. I should be more trusted. But the fact is that at this stage, there have been negotiations in full flow between Valencia and Manchester City about David Silva. And for all his stoicism about, I trust my guys, I trust my system, Del Bosque has a feeling that Silva, probably through no fault of his own, has got his attention slightly 
divided. Now, be that true, be that rubbish, we're 10 years on. Coincidentally, David Silva is about to leave Manchester City, a legend, but he couldn't get his place in that team. He then he, he began to become an impact player at, at best. And Navas, reliable, fast as anything. The team is pretty simple to name. It's Ramos at right-back, Piquet and Puyol in the middle. Iker in goals, Captavilla at left back, the double pivot, Sergio Busquets and Xabi Alonso. And a 4-2-3-1 can easily slot into a 4-3-3 very, very, not just quickly, but it's a fluid system. And Spain played ultra-fluidly with the ball. What you're getting then is Villa on the left, you've got Torres up front, um, Silva there, and Xavi effectively looking like he's a, pardon me, Navas on the right, and Xavi effectively looking like he's a 10 in the middle of the three behind the striker. But of course, Xavi will drop back in to help the two pivots out. And, and that was part of the beauty of watching that tournament, which we'll come on to. Given that David Villa was en route to becoming the all-time leading scorer for Spain, given the fact that he was fitter, given the fact that he could play number nine, and Torres was in trouble. Like Iniesta, he was suffering from a, a, a dreadful um, handicap in that he'd, he'd very badly injured um, himself by playing on to try and see Liverpool through their Europa League tie against or UEFA Cup tie against Benfica. He'd, he'd wanted to ensure that Liverpool did get through. And then because of the, the, the horrendous situation then, 10 years on, how funny is that, where Europe was in shutdown, there was an Icelandic um, volcano exploding, ash was meaning planes couldn't fly. In order to get service for a knee problem from the trusted surgeon that really all Spain's footballers go to, that Pep Guardiola still sends Manchester City's footballers across to, his name is Dr. Ramon Cugat. He lives in Barcelona. He's an extraordinary surgeon. He's either recuperated or saved many sports people's career. And Torres went, it's him. So he gets a driver and he nicks in his, you know, in his little mini all the way from uh, Merseyside, right down through England, Channel uh, Ferry across, um, down through the whole of France, over the border, south, just south of Perpignan, another hour, hour and a half drive um, down into Barcelona, exhausted, gets operated on, recuperates, waits until the planes can fly again, flies back and begins a programme to try, try to be ready for the World Cup. And at this World Cup, there are two things to conclude this section with, Neil, and that is that one, Torres ha hadn't begun looking all that ready, all that right. But in training, there were glimpses of him doing that thing where he would get in the way of a defender, turn him, um, that his strength was back and begin to score. And I'll tell you another thing. For those who listened to the very first episode about Iniesta's devils in his head, absolute torture by psychological fear. He'd been injured against Switzerland. Lichsteiner had gone right through him. And, and what the hell, Neil? You know, I understand why sportsmen and women say, fate touched me. I felt something happening. This was our moment. Because... That should have been the end of Iniesta. Psychologically, never mind his physical recuperation after Lichtsteiner did him, that should have been, oh no, not again. Instead, the tune in his head was, um, we can be heroes. And I don't know what happened, and it's only because he's spoken about it subsequently, but in the lead up to the Honduras match, where he knows he can't be fit, he's talked about going to sleep each night in Potchefstroom, knowing that as soon as he's fit, he's going to be right again. 
that something has gone. The little mental thorn in his side, stone in his shoe, for whatever reason, even though matters have got worse, is gone. And he knows that if that lot can get them through against Honduras, he knows I'm back. So that's the lineup. Little Andresito is, is watching. It's a no contest and it's largely going to be about David Villa, even though he's starting on the left-hand side of Spain's uh, attacking Tridente. That position turns out to be pretty important. He's, he hits the bar early on, David Villa, and then this happens. Piquet striking it left to David Villa. Captivere again is um, eager to get up there in support, but Veer with wonderful footwork has beaten two, and a wonderful goal! Absolutely brilliant! Individual magic from David Veer, who collects it wide left, sees only three defenders ahead of him, but also sees a route to goal, and a wonderful finish has given him a truly world-class World Cup goal. Graham, you spent years watching David Villa play in Spain and for Spain. I remember you being quite evangelical about him before I knew too much about him. You kept telling me that um, an English, a big English club, should just weigh in for Villa before he moved to Barcelona. So does his first goal here typify a David Villa goal or do you remember him more as a penalty box guy? I, th I think that the reason, if I became evangelical and, and I do go on a bit, which I think is what you're saying, but in nice university challenge words. He had everything. The first time I began to pay attention to him was when I was tipped off that Rafa Benitez in leaving Valencia told Liverpool that the number one signing he wanted, even ahead of Xabi Alonso, was David Villa. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This Zaragoza man who had won the cup um, with Zaragoza against Real Madrid in the final Olympic Stadium in Montjuic, um, with the, the first really brutal setback, maybe the second, but the first, um, when when the, the Galacticos were fully assembled and, and Beckham had joined and it felt like Florentino had got to the, the summit of his project because they had lost to Deportivo La Coruña at home in the cup final on their anniversary before Beckham joined. Um David Villa Zaragoza had beaten them an extra time, 3-2 if I remember correctly. And you could see that he was elusive. That's one thing that you don't always say about strikers. That when he was on the ball, he could slip and slither through challenges. And that he seemed to have this ability to keep the ball under his control in extremis. That if he was in a crowd, he'd come out with it. If he was approaching a crowd, he'd know what to do with it. But the, the most appealing headline things about him were that he'd score from distance free kicks. He'd score from headers. So position-wise, he wouldn't out-jump many, but he'd be really good at anticipating, getting to a front post header, getting between two centre-halves, understanding where somebody would cross, therefore getting a disproportionate amount of headed goals. And as a young kid, I think eight or nine, he broke a leg. And he decided that when his leg that was broken was in a plaster cast, that he would practice even while he was stookied up so that, that it happened to be a slightly weaker leg, the left, that he'd broken. And he practiced shooting against the wall with one good leg and the other one, you know, peg leg. And as a result, he became as strong physically and as strong technically on, on each foot, each leg. And, and that appealed to me, Neil. 
So you got him, this guy who could play as a nine, who could play as a seven, who would willingly take on other tasks if it was for the betterment of the team. And we talked about this in the opening goal against Russia in Euro 2008. Not a hint of jealousy that it was Torres he was serving up. It was, if we can get the ball in the net, my job is done. Hard man, a hard, tough, remorseless winner. And effectively the guy who'd caused Luis Aragonés to say, not only do I want to move Raul out for what he represents and how he plays, I know who's going to be his anointed successor. So David Villa had to soak up the pressure of a nation saying, you're not the seven, give it back to King Raul, you Asturian, get you? No, no, I just bounced off him. So the goal you're talking about where he comes in, Piquet's ball there isn't just something he invents. It's overload, the right-hand side, and Piquet's diagonal ball right into, um, as I remember it, Villa's uh, left instep. And he, he dumps it onto his right and he begins to cut in immediately. And there are two in front of him. And again, I'm cheating because I'm reusing a phrase that I think was accurate. That giant slalom that you see from Kitzbühel where men and women are going in, out, in, out, in, out, all the way down the hill at 105 miles an hour. That's what Villa does. A beautiful little slalom where the ball transfers from foot to foot and he's past two. And then there's one coming towards him. And I had to learn the names at the time of the Honduran defenders, but <laughs> in the t in 10 subsequent years, they've, they've escaped me like Villa's about to escape this one. And, and this one commits himself. Um, Villa cuts onto his right and he's, he's in shooting range now. And because it's Ellis Park, and this is a debate that we'll have over and over again during the tournament, um, his legs go from underneath him. It's winter time. The pitch management in South Africa isn't what it should have been. And and as he's going down, he can feel that his left leg is going from underneath him. And somehow he lashes out. And it gets a brilliant contact on it, such that it's going top corner. And maybe Honduras' keeper maybe gets a fingernail on it. I don't know. But it's to answer your question after a long um, evangelical Billy Graham bumper Graham rant yeah extremis is nothing um, to David Villa when the moment calls I'll be there I'll produce even if I'm falling over and lo and behold he does 1-0 and he gets a break for the second goal it's you know it's a different finish he's trying to just gently loft it away from the keeper's arm it gets a flick off a defender it's 2-0 Navas wins a penalty at 2-0 at, at um, and then Villa has a chance for the hat trick. You mentioned that you know he's Raul's successor, and he's on Raul's trail here already for World Cup goal scored, and eventually he's going to get to goal scored um, for the national team. And chances don't come much more clearer than than penalties. And he drops the goalkeeper one way and misses with the side foot that he opens up the other the other way. I think at this point he might not have been on the pitch though. I mean, I, I don't know the evolution of the sort of sanctions open to referees, but Via, I think, gets referred to a sort of video panel after the fact. Is that, is that right? It is right, because this is where, um, unfortunately for a dandy, Celtic come into the story, don't they? Emilio Isagiri is the fellow who gives away the penalty to on, on Navas. And I think, in all honesty, you've hinted at it, Honduras have been clinging on. And there's a point where they're not filthy by any means, but they, you know, they give out a little bit. They give some out, which if you're a minor um, Central American team and you're playing the European champions, I, I think you try and even the game however you can. And I think at a corner, not a free kick, 
Isagiri has a little dump onto David Villa's boot and he just tries to stud his toe. And and Villa reaches out and gives him one. Now, if it's a fist, he's off and he's banned for two, three games. But he just opens his, his palm and, and clips him one. There's no doubt he should be sent off. If VAR was involved, he'd have been sent off. How he didn't get banned retrospectively is something that I'm still scratching my chin about, just as Izukiri was scratching his chin when David went, listen, fella, don't come smart with me. And the thing I want to say, which, you know, I'm not trying to boast or be proud, but I, I have a short temper. And in a situation like that, I would definitely have done the same. So there's no way I can get grumpy about it. Um, but but they get away with one, and big style, Neil, they really do. After the final whistle goes and Spain are walking off after a 2-0 win, not everybody's happy. For the second game, Carlos Prio enters the home dressing room and launches his jersey against the wall. And even Del Bosque isn't, isn't happy with his guys. Well, I think at the time, I certainly, when I heard about this, I interpreted it as um, everybody thinking, is there a way in which goal difference can come into this? And we don't need to kid ourselves on. This was a 6-0 game masquerading as a 2-0 win eventually. That afternoon, Chile had beaten Switzerland um, 1-0 with Mark Gonzalez's goal. Ex-Liverpool, if you remember. A South African, actually. Born in South Africa, but playing for Chile. So Spain knew that um, Chile were now on maximum points. And they were fully aware of that. And I think I thought that it was like, well, Villa's missed a penalty. We've missed so many chances. El Nino's back, but he hasn't scored. We still haven't got Iniesta. And really, Neil, all these years later, having spoken, having been with them at Cheek by Chalo, another tournament, and spoken to many of them afterwards, I think they thought that even winning 2-0, but not killing Honduras, not smashing them, and coming off the pitch going, we have hit our peak again. I think they feared that by the time Chile came round, they hadn't done enough to convince themselves that they were a match for Marcelo Bielsa's Chile. I think they believed that they were so profligate against Chile, there was a chance they'd go out. And I think the sphincters had begun to tighten. I think rather than... I'm, I'm readdressing my idea that it was all about goal difference and that a 5-0 would have been arithmetically vital to them. I think they were going, God... Is it possible that we've just hit a patch where in three games we're off form and we could go out and be sent home from the group as European champions, you know, as France were eight years before? I think that's what was bugging Puyol because they, his d division hadn't given up really any chances. And you hear this in all sports where divisions of teams point the finger at the other privately and say, Bring on the bacon. What are you doing? Why are we here? This is not your level. Pick your game up. And I think there was a bit of that going on. Okay, well, let's leave Spain there. We're going to take a short break and then very quickly run through three games that were taking place around about this time in the World Cup. Okay, we're back and we're going to look at three games that were taking place in between Spain's defeat by Switzerland and their victory against Honduras. I'm going to start with one of the World Cup classics. It's England nil, Algeria nil. This is the last opportunity for a goal. If ever England needed a hero, it's now. In by Gerard. Crouch can't get there. And it's all over. The first ever 
meeting at international level between England and Algeria will frankly not live long in the memory. They were booed off the pitch at the end when Rooney said something in the television camera about that. Incredible story that I wasn't really aware of until I started reading about this game. After the match, an England fan actually breaches World Cup security and gets into the England dressing room. I think the fan gave a sort of um, considered analysis of the national team's performance to the players directly before he was politely asked to leave. I think, I'm pretty sure that's how it played out. Well, I, I was completely bemused. This this game fell between, um, I think, game two and game three for Spain. Um, I don't remember watching it. And because it's on at night time and Spain did uh, double training sessions, I think I was out with um, Adam Goldfinch and Glenn the Shadow Post filming a second Spain training session where even if it had been five all, I'd have been happier being. What is there to say about a game whereby the, the, the correspondents who were in Cape Town didn't, they, they and, and let's be honest, when I was hanging some of the Spanish football correspondents out to dry or media out to dry, England's, England's lynch mob aren't very different. And this was so pathetic that some of them couldn't even get their full ire up, which again, I refer them to Pele and ire is life and there are tablets for that. But it's almost as if the apathy and disgust was overwhelming because if you read the reports from the game and look at the apathetic, slow performance, then one of the things that I might be guilty of doing is having said that the Spanish pack jumped to wrong conclusions about the Switzerland defeat. And now maybe I'm wrong. For example, um, in this game, uh, we know that Michael Carrick doesn't play. And we know from a subsequent relationship um, built with Michael Carrick and from his excellent autobiography written with Henry Winter, that he was in the absolute pits of a depression then, that he couldn't really understand why he was at the World Cup, that the defeat to Barcelona with Manchester United in 2009 wasn't still simply haunting him. It had left him detached physically and mentally from football. And England's training camp was an unhappy place. The players were bored. They felt they were in the wrong place. They weren't training twice like Spain were. The, 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 the relationship with Capella was really quite frankly breaking down the the guy who broke into the dressing room was a descendant of one of the Scottish fans in 1978 who stood over the, the tunnel singing uh, we want our money back the second game to look at France nil Mexico 2 which just about does it for France Ferrer flag down flag is down chance here for Mexico around Lloris and it's the opening goal for Javier Hernandez Blanco against Loris. It's a huge run-up here for Blanco. But it works. And Mexico lead France by two goals to nil. They're just one small step from the last 16. And France are all but out. So, interesting though, let's not walk past Mexico. Chicharito scores, um, and so does... Blanco, who at this point is pushing Roger Miller for oldest dude to score at a World Cup. But can you say his Christian name? Because it is something like Coetamoc 
I mean, it's, it's really not an easy name to get. I'm going to go with Old Man Blanco. So it's Kao Temok Blanco. It's a brilliant name, one of the all-time great names. You know that me and Martin do this other podcast um, called Between the Lines, where we speak to writers and filmmakers about, about sports stories. So the last one that I did, which I think is actually out the day that you and I are speaking, um, was with... Matt Spiro about his book that's just come out on the French national team, sort of history of the French national team between their World Cup win in '98 uh, and their World Cup win in 2018, and it's it's really good about the highs, but it's fantastic on the the low points. This is just about as bad as it's ever been for them. The defeat is bad enough, but number one, it isn't their low point in the group. Uh, number two, it's not even a millionth of what's going on because up front in the first game a nil-nil draw with Uruguay who'll come within touching distance of the final so in other words retrospectively it's not the worst result in the world Nikola Nelka is 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 up front you know he remains um, an extraordinarily quick striker he's been elite although difficult and we're talking about Raymond Dominic a, a, a thumping, crunching, hard midfielder. And in the dressing room, I think after the um, the first draw with Uruguay, Anelka does and says something that causes Dominic to take offence. There are heated words. The relationship breaks down. Um, Anelka's given another chance to say sorry, to train, refuses, and ultimately is is sent home. And the majority, I, I, I'd be foolish in, in such a splintered and odd squad as they had. And, and listen, we won't name the whole squad, but the starting lineup in the first game is Ugo Lloris, Bakary Sanya, William Gallas, Eric Abidal, Patrice Edra, Jeremy Tulalan, Johan Gurkov, Abu Diaby, Sidney Gavu, Frank Ribery, Nicholas Anelka, Thierry Henry's on the bench, Flora Maluda's on the bench, Gignac's on the bench. You know, that's a team. Um... Not all of the team, but a, a, a decent chunk of the squad think Anelka is being badly treated, think that Dominic has lost the place. And in the background to all of this, they're going on strike. And not only do they go on strike, they publicise the fact that they're refusing to train for this guy. So with Anelka sent home, he faces the choice of Dominic of quitting himself, <laughs> sending for Anelka to come back, which obviously Anelka is not going to do. Ain't no chance there, brother. Um, or, or trying to convince the, the rest of the squad that it's a mea culpa situation and please lads, let's try and get through in the final game against South Africa because they're a bunch of duds. That's the option he chooses. He's forced to read out this, the squad's message about being unhappy with them and, and wishing that Anelka was still there. Humiliating number one. Um, midway through the, the text as you're reading it out to the assembled media, you have to be thinking, you know... I could be fishing on the Loire and drinking a nice you know, French white instead of sitting here making a total jackass out of myself. But the little curly-haired monster doesn't feel like that. So on he went. And look, spoiler, because we ain't coming back to that part of the group stage again. <laughs> the denouement. The guillotine comes down when South Africa beat them 2-1 and send them home in, in the, the last group game. And... It's an outright disaster from start to finish. Okay, so that's disaster for England, disaster for France. Um, where does New Zealand 1, Italy 1 stand in the World Cup upsets? 
Italy nervous and desperate, but that's it. Quite astonishing. New Zealand have made the impossible possible. New Zealand have just their second ever World Cup point. A remarkable day in Nelspreet. It's finished. Italy won. New Zealand won. I think it's massively underrated. This is the world champion Italian team, winners in, in 06, and a New Zealand team who, going into this World Cup, had only qualified for one and had never got so much as a point on the board. I hate to, to break this to you, but my World Cup debut game, you know, in my glorious career, was, you know, me in Scotland against New Zealand um, with the fantastically composed we're black, we're white, we're fucking dynamite <laughs> song that rang out all the way through the Rosaleda in 1982. And with Scotland 3-2 up, these Kiwis who you've been Kiwi bashing came back to 3-2. But never mind the fact they, they didn't get that point in 1982 against uh, Jockstein Scotland. They were about to hear, and, and, you know, I don't have a diagnosis now, but think about the smirks that Italy must have had when the draw was made the previous Christmas. They're put in a group with Paraguay, who they open the group by typically drawing with. That's Italy's opening statement in any big tournament that they're going to go on and win. And they've got New Zealand and who else? Slovakia. They're already, I suppose, plotting as reigning world champions for you know, where do we get our accommodation sorted out in, in Cape Town or Joburg or wherever the first or second place uh, team from this group uh, was going to end up. And instead, what happens is one of the most, easily one of the most ignominious results in their entire history. You know, Buffon is injured in the first match, but you've got, after Marchetti substituting him in goals, you've got Gianluca Zambrotta, Fabio Cannavaro, Giorgio Chiellini, you've got Simone Pepe, Daniele De Rossi, Riccardo Montolivio, Claudio Marchisio, uh, Vincenzo Iaquinta, you've got Gilardino, Iaquinta and Gilardino both played in the in the victorious 2006 campaign, Mauro Camoronesi, who's a brilliant footballer, Antonio Di Natale, a super striker, and managed by Marcello Lippi. Really, in all honesty, um, even though they had the mighty Ryan Nelson playing for the Super Kiwis and Aberdeen legend Rory Fallon, in all honesty, this was um, as shocking as it was inexplicable. And what it would amount to, maybe there weren't as many uh, easily diagnosed schisms in the camp as there were for the French, but it meant that the reigning world champions were hanging on the edge of a precipice. They... They had this disastrous prospect looming over them that they might go out. Okay, that threat still hangs over Spain. They've survived um, a bullet with Honduras, but there's another one in the chamber. Here comes Bielsa. Here comes Chile next time as we look at World Cup 2010 Revista. For now, Graham, chop chop. Shabalala. <laughs>